Well, good morning. Welcome to 2018. We are uh, starting this, this Sunday, uh, as you can tell, in Luke 15. We'll be back in Exodus if you've been with us. If you're new with us, we've been going through the book of Exodus for a while. We'll, we'll go back to that book uh, coming in February, but uh, for the month of January, we're going to be looking at some particular passages that deal with kind of our vision and future and where we're heading. And so um, let me pray for us as, uh, as we get started. Father, we ask that you would uh, give us uh, hearts to believe, ears to hear. God, um, we ask that you would uh, help us to see the scriptures, help us to see you in them, help us to delight in you, treasure you, God, be motivated by you and your gospel. Thank you for the word of God that you've given to us to tell us about you, to tell us about what you expect of us, to tell us what it is that you've done for us so that we can move out as your people, as your church. I pray, God, you would just give us understanding, and as Eddie prayed, prayed earlier, that God, you give us unity as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was July of 1961. 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered together uh, for the first day of training camp. Uh, the previous season had ended with a heartbreaking loss when the Packers squandered a late lead in the fourth quarter and lost the NFL championship to the then Philadelphia Eagles. At the beginning of training camp, the players had gathered in a locker room, all talking about the heartbreaking loss and what they could have done better. They were ready to get to work on their new ideas, take their game to the next level, all while awaiting their coach, Vince Lombardi, for instructions. David Moranis, in a biography, explained what happened when Lombardi walked into training camp in the summer of 1961. He said the following. He said, Lombardi took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental, elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, hold up a pigskin in his right hand. This is a football, right? That's how he began. The Packers would become known during that time as the best in the league at the tasks that everyone else took for granted, going back to the fundamentals, going back to the basics of what it meant to play the game of football. Six months later, they beat the New York Giants 37-0 to to win the NFL championship a few years prior to what became the Super Bowl. My friends, uh, as we think about that story, you need to know something pretty simple, right? This, this is a Bible. This is a Bible. This is God's Word to us. And in this Bible, it tells us that Jesus saves. And it also tells us that when we come to Christ, we become His church. We become His people uh, to represent Him, to carry out what He called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, to go and what make disciples, right, of all nations. We're to do that until Jesus returns or we're called home. That is our task. That is our goal. We do not exist as a church to take up space in a room. We don't exist as a church, uh, as I say to it, it's sit and soak in all the, all the knowledge and just sour away, right? We're, we're called to move. We're called to move towards Jesus as a people. We're called to move towards each other. And we're called to move towards this lost, confused, and suffering and dying world with the gospel. For the month of January, we're going to talk about the fundamentals. We're going to talk about why we should move. We're going to talk about where we should move and how we're going to do it. 
It's vital that we approach this subject as we start the year in 2018, because if we're going to see people come to know Jesus Christ, if we're going to see us grow in the gospel, then we need to be on the same page, and we need to unite around the same gospel story together. So, just as some NFL teams run a West Coast offense like the Packers do, or maybe uh, some run the ground-and-pound game like the Eagles, or just as some NBA teams run an early offense model like D'Antoni with the Rockets, or others a more set offense with Popovich and the Spurs. They all have different offenses, different methods, different ways of going about it. We need to know how are we going to run? How is the game going to be as it were played out? How are we going to unite together, move forward with the same goal as the people of God here in this church? For the last eight years... That was before my tenure here. I've been here almost coming up on uh, three years will be in June. Uh, The pastors and the deacons have been talking about how we should run. We've all desired the same thing. Unity in the body, getting the gospel out into the world, all for the glory of God. We've worded it differently. Uh, We've talked about different means and different methods. But at the end of the day, we've all been after the same thing. In order to do this, we're going to need a game plan. Now, clarity of purpose. Know what we believe and why we believe it. And we need this not just for today, not just for tomorrow, not for 2019, but for 2025, for 2040, right? We want to think of the long-term plan. I don't know about you, but I do not want to live a, lot, a short-sighted life. I want to think about legacy. I want to think about future. I want to think about my children. I want to think about my children's children, Right? I want to think about them living out the gospel, proclaiming the gospel for multiple generations to come. I want to fulfill what Moses preached about. We think about back in the story of the, of, of the Exodus when he stood on the precipice of going into the promised land. He envisioned in Deuteronomy as he was preaching to the people of God, he envisioned multiple generations following God. He said this, Deuteronomy 6.2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, right? He's looking at for the future, looking down the road, not just for that generation, but for multiple generations to come. I want to see generations built up in the gospel so that the church, the people of God, continue to be that pillar and buttress of the truth of the gospel, as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy. And I envision to do what Paul did when he discipled Timothy. He said this, 2 Timothy 2.2, he told Timothy, what you have heard from me, it's Paul to Timothy, In the presence of many witnesses, in trust of faithful men, there's a third group of people, right, who will be able to teach others also. There's a fourth group of people. There's Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. That's what we want to think about. We want to think about into the future and moving forward. My friends, this is Jesus' church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It is Jesus' church. And it exists to make disciples of him. And he does not want us to just survive. He does not want us just to hang on till death or his return. He surely doesn't want us just to hold on to a vision of the past, remembering how great maybe things were. He wants us, he said he will build his church. He will build his church in Matthew 16. That's future tense. Not I built my church, but I am am building, I will build my church. I can guarantee you this. If any church feels that they were built some time ago, then the church will die. Because Jesus is always building his church. The church built, it doesn't move, right? But the church is being built, that is being built, is moving and going and moving out. Moving towards Jesus, toward each other, toward the world with the gospel. And so with this in mind, 
after hundreds of hours, honestly, of writing, (laughs) countless conversations and debates, multiple revisions with an ever-expanding circle of leaders in our church, we as pastors, along with the input from deacons and life group leaders and community group leaders, have produced a new constitution and bylaws for us to consider. It includes clarity for, in what we believe with a more robust doctrinal statement, clarity of how we will operate as a body of Christ, clarity of purpose on why we exist, and even clarity with a new name. We'll slowly roll this out over the next two months with many articles that we have already written to help explain some of these things, meetings with you, with others, getting feedback, and continuing to edit this living document that is there with a final vote on things in the month of March. We want to take the next few weeks to kind of set all this up and explain kind of where we're going and talk about our purpose. Now, we have talked about, I've preached on, talked about our purpose before. Uh, we've talked about the, kind of the five key words. You see the pictures around the church in different ways. We talked about community and gospel and mission and city and Jesus and kind of being the main thrust of what we're about in those key words. We have transferred this these five words, into four statements, four phrases based on feedback that we have gotten uh, about how to struggle to how to apply those things. What does that look like in a practical way? And so we've added some verbs, okay? Verbs are helpful. They kind of tell you what to do, right? And so, so here's how we will seek to fulfill the Great Commission together as a church moving forward. Here are the four phrases. I'm going to take the first one today, and then we'll do the rest of the month of January to go through these. Number one is delighting in the gospel, then growing through relationships, serving our community, and sending into the world. This is, this is basic. This is the football, right? This is, this is, what, this is not something that's going to be earth-shattering or like, whoa, that's radically strange. I've never heard concepts like that before. But what are we going to run, right? What's going to be the offense? How are we going to do this? This is kind of the phrases that we're going to be talking about a lot to kind of help us unite around the same thing. And so for our time remaining, we're going to look at the phrase delighting in the gospel. And at the end of our time together, I'm going to pull out some chairs here. I'm going to bring up the pastors and some other life group teachers and deacons, etc., that will be coming up to kind of help uh, entertain and talk about what that looks like practically for us as a church. And we'll do that at the end of our service. So as you have questions about this particular subject, you can text those in. Uh, you see the number on the screen there, and you can text those in. We'll help answer those and work through this together. So let's talk about the gospel for a minute. The gospel. That's a word we throw around a lot, get lost, kind of, the, kind of the overuse of the term maybe, and kind of forget what actually is that all about. Well, it's absolutely essential for us. Matter of fact, Paul saved his most stern and provocative language for those who got it wrong, okay? Go to Galatians 1, and you'll see the language that Paul used. He was very, very passionate about keeping the gospel central and keeping it clear. You say, what is it then? What is the gospel? Well, it's You've heard it before, it's good news, right? It's good news. It's an announcement that something has been accomplished, right? It's news, it's a report about something that's good that's been done, and it changes everything. In essence, it is the fact that Jesus lived a life that you could not live and then died the death that you should have died to save you and send you out. Sometimes it's good to say, what is it not? And I've told you this before, I always think about that. Well, what does it not mean? Well, the the gospel is not good advice. It's not good advice. It's good news. Matter of fact, if you've ever read the New Testament, if maybe you haven't, but if you've ever read it and you open it up, maybe you remember the first time you ever read it. You take Matthew, the very first book. 
you flip it open, you read it, and maybe you're expecting it to say something like, um, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, you know, or, or, or some sort of like, you know, in, in a, a long time ago, once upon a time, there was this, this baby who was born in a manger. That's how you expect it to begin. If you go back to Matthew 1, it doesn't start that way. There are no Star Wars references there, right? It doesn't start with the story of the baby being born. It doesn't start with a command or anything. It actually starts with, Matthew 1 starts with what? It starts with a bunch of names. It's like a Hebrew phone book just running with the father and son of him and son of him and son of him. And you're kind of going like, that is the strangest way to start (laughs) this all off. Why does it start that way? Because it's history. It's a story with real people and real events. It's not fantasy. It's it's not written for us to to, to have a, a, a bunch of commands and things in which we are supposed to do. That's not the point at all. It's history. It's news, not commands. You say, why does the New Testament begin with history and news rather than commands? Because God is telling us that the Bible, that the gospel story, the essence of the Bible is a story, and it's not about you, and what you need to do for God, but it's about Jesus and what he came to do for you. And that that may sound really similar, but I promise you that is a radically different way of looking at it. It's not about you and what you need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for you. That's a whole different way of looking at it. Thus, the Bible is not, at its core, rules, instructions, or manual. It's a story of redemption. And so the rules are there to point us to the ruler, The instructions are there to point us to the instructor. The stories are there to point us to the ultimate storyteller who has as a central character himself. You say, what hinders this gospel story from going forward in our lives? What what keeps it from having its impact in our lives? What keeps it from going forward out into the world? Well, there are two particular enemies of the gospel, two hindrances we find in Scripture. They're alive and well today in our church, alive and well in the world. They're called idolatry and religion. Those are two things that keep the gospel from impacting our lives. And they're in Luke 15, the passage you heard read earlier. The younger son who runs away and the older brother who stays home. Both are lost. Both are not in the father's house, right, until the story ends. The younger brother who runs away is a symbol in the Bible of idolatry, while the older son who stays at home is a symbol of religion. Both of these things are sworn enemies of the gospel. Both represent a different way to be alienated from God. Both. Both are uh, destructive, have destructive consequences. Both hinder the gospel from going forward, and you will hear us address these things often. So let's look at the two of them. Number one, the idolatry of the younger brother. In in verses 11 through 24, the younger brother in the family who runs away, uh, who you're probably familiar with, you're probably thinking of this story, is probably the only brother you actually think of if you've ever heard this story before. But it's a story of two sons, Jesus says at the beginning. And this younger brother represents a certain group of people. If you look back in your Bible at the very beginning of of Luke 15, verse 1, you'll find a group of people named tax collectors and sinners. You see them there? That's the people. That's that's part of the crowd that Jesus is addressing, tax collectors and sinners. Now, Luke records them this way, not to say that they were the only sinners in the world, but rather they represented those who were outside the temple, we could say today, outside maybe of the church, whose moral compass has been hijacked by sin. It was the people who lived by their own rules, hoping to find life in what they could make of it. In many cases, this group of people 
would be the ones who leave home, meaning they leave the traditions, morals, upbringings that they had growing up. Now, I'm calling this the idolatry of the younger brother, but what is idolatry? Let's define that for a moment. Idolatry, as you may think, is not just reserved for those who bow down to wood and stone. It's very prominent in America today. And here's how it works. And I've laid this out before you, uh, for you before, but let me say it again. Our narratives, our story goes something like this. Instead of running to the true and living God, the true and living Savior, Jesus Christ, we all make substitutes, okay, called idols. They're substitutes. Uh, think of it, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, I'm a big fan of that series, right, books in the, in the movie. Think of Gollum, you know, and his precious, right? We, we all have something that we gravitate towards to find life, to find purpose, meaning, and, and forgiveness, and life in. And so we, we all have our own, what I'll call functional saviors and gods out there. We're all seeking to be delivered from some perceived need, some functional hell we don't want to be in, and so we want to get into a functional heaven, and so we find something to get us there, right? We don't want to be here. We want to be here. How do I get there? What's the means of getting there? And so we find something to grab a hold to that we hope will give us what we deep down want, and thus we believe lies, for these gods and saviors can't deliver what they promise. Look with me at the younger brother who bought the lie of idolatry, right, that life could be found. Uh, outside of God, out in the world. Look at this, verse 11. man had two sons, right? The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me a share of my property that is coming to me. And then he divided the property. It was not uncommon, uncommon for the father to give his inheritance to his sons. He would pass on the land and the property and any other resources to them, usually the greater portion going to the older son, two-thirds of it uh, going to the older son. And here we find the younger one asking for his portion immediately. There's a problem here, right? There's a problem with this request. This still applies today. The laws of inheritance are enacted only when death occurs. He has to die in order for this to occur. But the father is not only alive, obviously he's talking to him. He, he's not even on his deathbed. Later on in the story, we're going to see, this, see him running, right? So he's in pretty good shape. Uh, he's not even, not even close to dying, and yet the younger son wants his property, wants his inheritance. And so what was the young, younger son saying? In essence, he was saying, Dad, I, I wish you'd just die. That's what he was saying. He wants his father's things, but not his father's love. He wants his father's blessings, but not his father's presence. He wants his father's possessions, but not the father's possession of him. Does that sound familiar? You're going to see the story and the parallels in a minute. Jesus then tells us that the father succumbed to the requests. Think about that. How, how does giving away part of the inheritance while he's still alive make the father feel? Well, in that culture, it was absolutely shameful. I mean, to lose part of your land was to lose part of yourself it was, and a major share of your standing in the community. Imagine this. You know, you walk down the street in this town. You got, hey, here's Jimmy who owns this farm, you know. Here's Edward who owns this business, you know. Here's Lloyd who, well... He owns really little because he gave it all away to his younger son and went and blew it all away, right? I mean, he would have been considered soft and weak and shameful in his community. It actually wasn't uncommon for a father to even grant the sons the legal right of inheritance before he died. He could do that, but he still belonged to the father till he died. They had no real right or responsibility to sell the property, but the father does so at great cost to himself financially, emotionally, and socially, all for the love of his son. 
Now, most of Jesus' listeners to this story wouldn't have, have seen a patriarch in this culture act like this or respond this way. The father patiently endures a tremendous loss of honor as well as the pain of rejected love is what he's enduring here. So verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and squandered the property in reckless living. So it didn't take long for the son. He immediately turns around, he liquidates, sells property, gets the income to take with him to go into a far country. Probably doesn't even get, if you think about it, reading between lines here, doesn't even get a good price for it most likely, right? He just sold it quickly which means he probably got pennies on the dollar for what the property actually was worth. He was just trying to get some quick sales and get the money and get out of town, right? Adding to the, to the shame uh, of the father already. The son believes the lies here of idolatry. He believes he can be a self-made man. He can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He doesn't need his father. He thinks life will come through the things of this world and what he can make of it. And so verse 14 tells us he spent everything, everything, And then all of a sudden, suffering arose, right? Severe famine arose in the country. He began to be in need, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. And he goes on to talk about how he comes to his senses and how many of the father's hired servants have more than enough bread. If I could just just get myself maybe back home and be hired as a servant, then maybe I'll just get enough food, right, to fill my stomach. And so here we find the son spent everything, every dime, was gone in what appears in a very short period of time. His God of self-reliance and his Savior of money had turned on him. He was lost. So lost, in fact, that he ended up working with pigs and eating with pigs. And if you're familiar with any of the culture here as a Jewish person, um, working with pigs and eating with pigs is completely contrary to what a Jewish man would have done. This was for Gentiles, not Jews. So he, he comes up with a solution. He, he, he thinks, if I go home, I'll be a hired servant. He feels, now notice this, he feels if he makes restitution by proving his worth to his father and the surrounding community and paying off his debt, he'll be accepted, right? I, I just got I just to fix this, right? But the solution to idolatry is not religion. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It's, it's not rules. It's not good works. This is the way many people think in our world, they, as it were, come to their senses. What I mean by that in the text mean they realize this life is not adding up, right? Making and spending the money is not working. Drinking out of the systems of the world just isn't worth it. The relationships aren't working. The job isn't cutting it. The parties are getting lame. They feel alone. And for many, their immediate thought is, this is not their thought, but this is basically how it goes, irreligion is not working. <laughs> Living it up out there is not working. I need religion. I need, I need, you know, and it's still in our culture, if things go really bad, really rough, you think, well, I just need to go to church and get this right. Right? Some of you, that may be part of your testimony, your story. This is how you got to know the gospel because you came in. You're like, okay, I got I to gotta, I gotta, gotta fix this. I got to get right with God. I got to do the right thing and be at the right place. It's still hardwired into our culture as a solution. Now, many who go this route find out that life isn't found in the church either. They grow despairing and hopeless when the, when the good works don't improve their mood, when the church attendance doesn't make them happy, when the giving doesn't bring them joy. This is exactly the story of some of you right now. You got one foot out the door, one foot in, because you thought the solution, that's what you thought that's what the solution was, right? I just need to fix myself up, get things right, clean, clean, clean myself up, and then everything will be back to normal. I'll be good again. The younger brother thought the same thing, but look what happened. This is the shocking part of the story. Verse 20, 
He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You imagine the journey this younger son took on the way home. Let's imagine him for a moment. The younger brother is going over his script, right? He's got a script that he's got. He had written for himself. He's rehearsing it over and over as he walks the dirt road home, hoping that just maybe he'll at least get a job with food in his belly. As he walks with head down, kind of mumbling to himself his script, he hears the stampeding of feet approaching, right? Maybe, maybe it's a messenger. He's been dispatched from the king to tell about an, maybe another army is coming to invade us, right? He's probably thinking, well, who else is going to invade us? Because this was quite common, by the way. They get invaded quite often in Israel. Then the horizon, he sees not a soldier, but what looks to be like a, like a peasant. And his eyes are squinting as he shades the eyes with his son. He, 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 the figure gets closer, and it's almost like this person in the horizon is running, like making a beeline straight for him. He grows nervous. Maybe he thinks this is a robber, right? He's coming to steal from him, but he thinks to himself, well, good luck, buddy. I don't have anything. Oh, you can steal from me, but I have nothing to give to you. And as he looks closer, as the figure gets closer, it's an older man. He's got his robe. He's kind of pulled it up, and he probably thinks to himself, who is this fool of an old man running like this? You see, older men in this culture didn't, didn't do this sort of thing. It was disgraceful. Children might run. Women might run, young men might run, but dignified pillars for the community did not run. As a matter of fact, the word used for the father's running was a word used for competitive foot races. So he wasn't skipping, okay, through the fields. <laughs> he, was, he was sprinting full speed as hard as he could go. And then you can imagine it kind of clicks with the younger brother. It's his father. His father. What in the world is he doing? What is he thinking? Everyone's going to mock him. Everyone's going to laugh at him for running like this. As the son stands still, the father virtually leaps on him, hugging him. Imagine, no doubt, twirling him around as he just hugs him, spins him, and just tears flowing from his eyes. The son is overwhelmed. But he quickly, the story goes, he quickly gathers his thoughts you know, imagine, <clears throat> hold on, hold on, Dad, hold on, I got, I got something to tell you, right? So he's got his script out, you know, he's ready to, ready to rehearse, and this is what he does. He goes through his script, the thing he had memorized about what he was going to do, talks about his, his remorse, he talks about his plan to pay off his debt, and the father just stops him, mid-sentence. Calls for his servants, who probably are out of breath trying to keep up with the father, like, come here, guys, you know, they're, they're running behind him, come here. And, and, he, and, he, and he comes up, and the command is not, you know what, hey, get my son a job with you guys. It's not that. It's not, you know, escort him to the local merchants for an internship. Doesn't do that. And it's not even the command to drag him before the village and have him show public remorse, which would have been, by the way, in that culture, the actual thing to do. He should have drug him before the village. He should have given his story of remorse and what he should have, what he should have done to restore honor back to the father. That's what he should have done. Didn't do that either. That's now how he, that's how he thought this would go. Instead, we find the, the father throws a party. Isn't that ironic? This guy had already had many parties. <laughs> he had lost everything in parties, and here his dad is throwing a party for him. He, he was planning on paying his debts through years of servitude and slavery, and instead he is showered with love and grace and acceptance. He's brought back into the family. He's brought back into relationship with the father who gave him life without having to do a thing. He did, the son doesn't have to lift a finger to be restored back. He's given, it says in the text, the best robe, 
Who's that, whose robe would that have been? That would have been the father's robe. He is given the fattened calf, which would have taken years, by the way, to be, get the status of fattened calf, right? So it's a lot of investment, a lot of years into this animal to be able to make it the fattened calf, right? So it's a, it's a, this is costly. This is very expensive. I love how Tim Keller, in his book on this story, I've gotten the resource center in your, in your bulletin this morning, he put it this way. So the father is saying, quote, I'm not going to wait until you've paid off your debt. I'm not going to wait until you've duly groveled. You are not going to earn your way back into the family. I'm going to simply take you back. I will cover your nakedness, poverty, and rags with robes of my office and honor. I will sacrifice myself to clothe you and to bring you back in. Hopefully you can see now in this story, if you've not made the, connected the dots just yet, that the father in this story is none other than God himself. And with the younger, he's what the younger brother had been searching for, but he didn't realize it. No matter how far, you understand this this morning, no matter how, no matter how far you have gone, no matter how far down the rabbit hole you have fallen, right? No matter how far, no matter how much you have hurt others, no matter how much you have hurt yourself, no matter how much you have dragged God's name through the dirt by tarnishing his image he has placed upon you, there is grace to spare. The Father is still in pursuit. He's still looking. God is in pursuit of you. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God is in pursuit of you, no matter where you are. He's in pursuit of you. He doesn't wait for you to pick yourself up. He doesn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He doesn't wait for you to go to church and do good works and say your prayers and all of that. He comes after you. He calls you to himself. He transforms you. He gives you a new heart that beats for him, right? That, that changes how you see him. It changes how you view others. He does that. And that's, that's what the Bible's about. That, that, that is the gospel story. And just as the father delighted in the return of his son, so we want to delight in the gospel as a church. We will plant our flag here. And we will call you not just to to listen to Bible stories, not just to obey Bible commands, but the word is very important that we chose, delighting in the gospel. We'll call you to delight in the story of the Bible. When you do that, you will find an affection for God that swallows up all the other affections you could have for any other God or Savior or functional Savior out in the world, any other idol. It's the, Thomas Chalmers once put it this way, the expulsive power of a new affection for the gospel that creates passionate worshipers, that builds genuine love and affection for people, that moves us all to sacrifice time and talent and treasure in the service of others and the advancement of the gospel. It's the delighting in the gospel story that does that. Sheer commands to do that doesn't, train, doesn't change us, doesn't change your heart. God is after your heart. That's why the Bible is central as a gospel story about him. So we don't just want you to fill your head with information. We want the information to be fuel that the Holy Spirit of God catches on fire and moves us all to treasure Christ. For when we delight in his love for us, you know what happens? We can then love others. When we delight in his grace he has shown to us, we can show grace to others. When we delight in the mercy in which he shows us, we can have mercy and care for others. There's a reason why Jesus put it this way in the Gospels. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you, can meet my, if you keep my commandments, you'll love me. Oh, no, it's not that way. That's completely opposite. <laughs> it's if you love me, if you delight in me, just, just, just focus on that part. Then the, the results will be, you, you'll, keep, you'll want to, you see? 
It'll transform you. When you get the gospel story, you delight in what God has done for you, you turn around and go, God, what do you want of me? You see? That's why that story is so central. That's why it's the first element of what we're talking about. It's so vital. Number two, the religion of the older brother. Let's look at the other, another enemy of the gospel, another hindrance. Just as the younger brother represented a group of people, so the older brother does. Look back at 15.1 again. See this group. Look, it says, Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. There's our second group of people. See the two groups of people? So this group, is the, this older brother, is represented of the Pharisees and the scribes. They are the ones who stayed home. Contrary to the younger brother, they keep the rules as best they can, holding to the traditions and upbringings of their family. They know the scriptures. They rely on their morality and good deeds to bring them life, hoping it will be enough to give them a good life, hopefully even eternal life if they're good enough. And as bad, and this is very important for you to notice, as bad as the consequences were for the idolatrous younger son, right? He lost everything. He's, he's living with pigs, eating with pigs. Like, it's pretty bad, right? I mean, he's starving. The consequences of his idolatry is really bad. His lostness and pain that was brought upon himself with idolatry caused the younger son to grieve. It caused him to look up, didn't it? It caused him to return. Where did he end up? In the father's house. The lostness and the blindness of the religious older son causes him to refuse to go into the father's house, doesn't it? It's actually, the consequences are actually greater for the older son than it was for the younger. Look at verse 25. The older son was in the field. He drew near to the house. He heard music. He heard dancing. He asked what's going on with this. He became angry. He refused to go in, it says. So you can imagine kind of in the story, the, kind of the camera kind of pans from the, from the younger brother and he moves over. And we, we focus on the older brother now. He's out in the fields, right? The younger brother, he, he's walking into the father's house. You can see him decked out in his father's robe with his ring on and everything. You can smell the scent of the fattened calf, you know, and steaks are on the grill out there. And you can smell that in the air. And as the camera pans over to the older son, you can smell the sweat from working out in the fields, right? You can smell that. And he's, he's furious. He's mad. How in the world could his father be so weak and bend so easily? And so he refuses to go into the party. And he does actually the same thing the younger brother did. He brings shame onto his father. He brings shame to him. It's his turn now to disgrace his father by staying outside, making his father stop the party, come outside, and beg his son to come inside. Earlier in the day, the father paid the price of self-emptying self love in order to reconcile the younger brother, and now he must do the same and pay the same price to try to win the older brother. We talked about this before, guys. Forgiveness always requires suffering. God must suffer if he's going to bring us in, right? Older or younger brothers here. So verse 28, the father came out. He entreated him. He begged him, but he answered his father, look, many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat. Forget the fattened calf, you never even gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, notice he doesn't even take, he doesn't even identify with him as his brother anymore, right? But this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, why is the older brother so upset? Well, there's two reasons. One, the cost of the party with the fattened calf, as we talked about, was really expensive, and that meant, that meant that the father was spending whose money? 
The older son, the older, it's his money. That's his. Because remember, he already divided up. He already given the younger brother his inheritance. So whatever's left over the father has that he's spending, it's, on the, it's, it's basically the older brother's bill. See that? So he's, he's upset for that reason. That's one reason he's upset. But secondly, most importantly, he's furious because the younger brother, and he says this in the text here, has not earned this party. He has not earned this feast. He has not earned this acceptance when clearly he had. He had. Now, notice the older brother refers to his record. Do you see that? I've never disobeyed you. I've kept everything you said. This is religion at its core. It is striving to keep a record of wrongs and rights. And the results with a religious person, here's what it emotionally looks like, is either they're the most happy and arrogant person you'll ever meet, or the most miserable and bitter person you'll ever meet. They are happy if they feel they are superior than you in keeping the rules better, or they're miserable if they feel they've failed to match up to you. And if someone seems to be receiving the good life, blessings from God, who are clearly no match for them on the morality scale, they get upset. Wait a minute, that's not how this world's supposed to work. This person has a formula. I do good things, I get a good life. Right? That's how this works. I, I serve God, he blesses me. This is how the formula is supposed to work. It's how life is supposed to work. And when I serve God, love God, and I do good things, I don't get a good life, they get upset, just like he did. It's like, oh, this is not how it's supposed to work. You owe me, God. You see, the older brother is not losing his father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. He's not going in because of his own goodness. Isn't that interesting? Just like the younger brother, the older brother just wanted the goods of the father and not the father himself. The heart is exactly the same. As I told you at the beginning, these are two different ways of being lost. <laughs> a religious person operates on the principle, again, you do good things, you get a good life. You do good things, you get blessings from God. In reality, religion, this is, again, maybe you never thought about it this way, but in reality, religious people use religion to avoid God. Use it to avoid God. They hide behind their self-righteousness. If I serve God well enough, get off my back. God, I, I, I keep your rules. Leave me alone. All right, I, I do good things. Give me a good life, and I'm good. Let's just go away. There's no, there's no desire for relationship, you see. It's just a servant attitude, right? I'm just going to just do whatever you tell me to do, and you just, just get off my back. Give me a good life. Don't, don't give me suffering. Don't give me hardship. Just give me a good life. Matter of fact, uh, Flannery O'Connor, a very interesting little sentence here. She said, there was already in her book a, a deep black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus is avoid sin. It's interesting. If I just avoid sin, if I just, if I just keep the rules, then I don't need Jesus, right? <laughs> I don't need him. Who needs a Savior when I can save myself? When I'm good enough, you see? You say, Chris, what's the difference between this religion and gospel? What was the difference in these? This is important to kind of understand the difference. Number one, religion says, obey God, he will love you and accept you. The gospel says God loves you because of Jesus, therefore you obey. Religion says life in the Bible is all about what I do for God. The gospel says it's about Jesus and what he, what he did for God on my behalf. Religion sees sin as basic just breaking the rules, and God's concern is only for rule-keeping. The gospel sees sin at its core as idolatry, and his concern is for the heart of his people to transform them. So that they treasure him. Religion says, I give God a good record based on all the instruction in the Bible, and then God owes me. Right? 
The Gospels say God gives me a perfect record based upon what Jesus has done, and I owe him my everything. I owe him my life. Religion says God's like a, I compare it like a pinata. If you know what pinata is, you get enough birthday parties for kids, you know what a pinata is. Religion says God's like a pinata. Religious acts are the stick that you hit him with to yield the good life, right? If I hit him enough, do enough good deeds, he'll yield the good life, right? The good stuff. The gospel says God is an unconditional lover and giver to those who accept his son. Religion leads to pride, despair, uncertainty, and no assurance because you never know if you're good enough, right? The gospel leads to humility, confidence, and joy. Now understand this. We're all religious here, <laughs> okay? We struggle with that. We all do. I love how Martin Luther put it back in the 16th century. He said, religion is the deep default of the human heart. It's just like every day you wake up, it's like, ding, okay, I'm back to like robotic mode of what do I need to do for God and like just to check off the boxes. That's just, it's just a default. Every day you wake up, it's kind of where we, we bend towards, right? We all have more older brother in us than we care to realize because at our core, we're all judgmental people. We're always trying to size people up. It doesn't have to be religious stuff. We're just always trying to size people up. You know, how do they look? Do I look better than them? Am I better shaped than them? Am I smarter than them? Do I have more money than them? We're always trying to size people up. And much of this comes from a failure to understand the gospel, a failure to understand what the scriptures are all about. You see, when we talk about every other religion, it talks about their faith in terms of instruction. But the New Testament talks about the Bible in term gospel. Our religions are instruction, okay, what you do, with stories kind of sprinkled throughout to illustrate how to keep the instructions, right? But, the, but Christianity is a, is a story. It's a true story. What Jesus has done for us, the gospel, sprinkled with instruction to illustrate and point to the story. It's two different ways of looking at it again, right? And so we keep bringing that back again. That's why Jesus said this, John five thirty nine. you... He's speaking now to this group of people, the Pharisees and scribes. You search the Scriptures. In other words, you, you can memorize They probably memorize it. They could quote any verse anywhere. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. If I, if I read this enough, if I obey enough of its commands, then I'll have life. And Jesus says this, but it's they, speaking of the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. If, Jesus said, what is he saying? This Bible is all about, it's about me, guys. It's all pointing to me. You see, Christianity is is, as instruction illustrated by stories. If you're into that, then you're into religion. And you're lost because you don't get it. You don't get the gospel. You miss the forest for the tree. The sad result is moralizing, meaning we we read the Bible not to learn about Jesus, not to delight in Jesus, but only to learn principles, how to live a good life as a good person by following the good example of some and avoiding the bad examples of others. And that kind of approach to Scriptures, guys, is not Christian. Because it treats the Bible like any other book with moral lessons. It's, it's basically Aesop's fables is what it is. Exactly the same thing. Utterly disconnected from faith in and salvation in Jesus. It has to be connected to that. Otherwise, it's no different. So when we fail to delight in the gospel, but rather delight in our own name and our own accomplishments, then instead of being a community of healing, we become a community of pain. Instead of becoming a community of love, we become a community of judgment. Instead of becoming a community of giving, we become a community of taking. Instead of being a community of serving, we become a community of isolation. Instead of being a community of vulnerability and transparency, we become a community of mask wearers and performers. Instead of being a community that makes much of Jesus, we become a community that just makes much of our own selves. That's what happens when the gospel is not central, and it can easily happen any day, right? Look how the text ends, right at the last couple of verses there, verse 31. 
He said to him, this is speaking to the older son, son, you're, all, you, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. Notice the father responds to our religious bent with tenderness and grace, just as he responds to our idolatry. He causes delight in his story, enter into his presence, rest in his accomplishments for us. You see, both the idolatrous person who lives for the world and the religious person who lives for the church are just as lost when Jesus is not the point. Both are trying to achieve joy, life, and acceptance through effort. You see, you can rebel against God and be alienated from him by breaking the rules or by keeping them diligently. Jesus offers us a third way. He offers you himself by paying the price of idolatry and religion. He called both the the, the tax collector and sinner and the scribes and Pharisees, he called all of them to himself. Neither way they were going was going to work. Neither way was going to lead to heaven. Neither way was going to lead to relationship with God. Neither way was going to lead to forgiveness. Neither way was going to lead to life. They had to go a third way, and that was the way of Christ. For the younger brothers of the world to come home, And for the older brothers of the church to enter into God's presence, the father had to bear the price. He gave up his son for us so that all us as lost sons could enter in. This is why he said, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. He is that path. He is the way. He is what the scriptures are all about. He is what we are all about. He is where we plant our flag, right? So as we we go to communion and make that transition, I want you to reflect on these two elements, idolatry and religion. Which camp are you in? Which one of those are you bent towards, leaning towards? What way has the gospel story not melted your heart and shaped your heart and formed your heart in a way that you delight in the story, delight in the gospel, delight in God and what he's done for you? So this is all point of taking communion every Sunday. We take it to remember, okay, God, reset button, you know, it's not just for the whole year. This is like every Sunday we need to reset the button again and go, okay, why am I here? What is the point of all of this? Why did I get up this morning? Why, why, why do I call myself a Christian? Oh, okay, yeah, it's, it's not about me. It's not about my accomplishments. It's not about what I can do. It's about you, God. It's about what you came to do for me on my behalf and die and go to a cross and resurrect so that I can have life in you. I owe you my life again, right? It's, we're, we're consecrating our life every Sunday again. We're just kind of not getting saved over and over again. We're just reconsecrating again, right? We're giving up our life going, God, let me, nah, I took it back off the altar. Here it is again. Romans 12, 2, right? I give my, my life as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. We just always have to keep doing that because we forget. We forget why we're here. We forget what, what God has called us to. We forget the whole point. And this is why we come back to the gospel every Sunday. That's why we're going to have this as central to us. This is why we're going to always talk about Jesus. So as you, if you're a Christian today, when we take some time, some quiet time to reflect, take some time, and you come forward, go to the back. There's bread, there's juice. represents the body and blood of Jesus, broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. Okay, that's what we're doing it for. When you're ready, you can come there. Um, and then you can go back to your seat, take it there, go back to your seat, whichever. If you're not a Christian, okay, communion is not for you. Okay? It is there for the, for the people of God, those who have come to faith in the person and work of Christ. If you're unsure of that, if you don't know about that, if you're uncertain about that, if you don't even know what I'm talking about, hey, we're glad you're here. Okay? Come see us. Let us pray for you. Let us, let us tell you more about this person and work of Jesus Christ. There are people here to pray for you, whether, whether you need to un- ask questions about the gospel, or whether you just need to lay a burden down before God and you just need someone to pray for you, please come see them. They'll be here for you as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. 
Thank you for the gospel story. Thank you for coming to our world. Lord, we, we deserve to be left alone. In many ways, we're all older brothers and younger brothers. We all have squandered like a younger brother. We've sold everything off and wandered out into the world and tried to find joy and satisfaction and hope and life in something we can do with our hands and make of ourselves. And yet, God, if we've come to Christ, we've come to realize that that was vain, that you are the point. And yet, God, many of us are like older brothers. We, we struggle being in church, being in religious circles, being in the Word, being in prayer, and just doing it for checking off a list not doing it because we delight in you, but doing it because we're just expected to do it. God, I pray that the gospel would rest so heavily upon our heart that the masks are taken off, transparency, vulnerability, honesty reigns throughout our group, throughout our church. And God, as we move forward, that you would bring unity amongst us. And God, help us to move forward as your people to get the gospel into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. You can go ahead and take a seat. As Pastor Chris mentioned at the beginning of his sermon, um, we, we do want to take some time over the next couple of weeks to consider some pretty significant changes as a church family. So we're going to do something a little bit different here at the end of this service and for the rest of January, where we're just going to take some time to circle up and talk and kind of share our vision, our philosophy, the reasons why, some of the things that the Holy Spirit has done in our own hearts that has led us to propose um, these changes. And as you heard Pastor Chris mention, uh, we, are, we do believe that the Holy Spirit's led us to propose change in a doctrinal statement, constitution, and name. And we're going to take the next several weeks to talk about that and to really unpack that together as a church family. And I know immediately as we say those things, a lot of questions come up and want to know when that information arrives. We just want to clearly um, let you know our intention of explaining these things. We're going to take the next few weeks to explain why. And then on January 21st is when we're going to release copies of the new doctrinal statement. And then a week after that is when we're going to present to you the Constitution. And then we're going to take some time as a, uh, in family meetings and in life groups and community groups to be able to talk through those things, answer any questions. And then on February 11th is when we'll present what we believe the Holy Spirit's leading us to be as a new name for our church family. So as I said, we want to take time at the end of each service this month to really talk about the big picture, the why. And that is why we took time this morning to discuss delighting in the gospel, because the gospel is what has motivated us to even consider these things and to present them before you. So this morning, we, we just want to take some time to talk about, just kind of more practically speaking, why? Why are we delighting in the gospel? And we, we want to talk about this as pastors, and we also want to invite different leaders from the church to come up and join us. We've asked Jared Alsdorf to join us. He serves as a deacon and also as a life group teacher here at the church and has been a wise counselor with us as pastors as we've discussed these things. So one of the things we just want to start off with immediately is, practically speaking, what does delighting in the gospel look like? Somebody even texted in, what are the practical ways to avoid religion and keeping the score? So we just want to talk about that. Guys, on a personal level, how do we delight in the gospel? 
Yeah, I, I think it comes, I mean, the, the first answer to that is in terms of our own personal Bible study. Uh, this is that, not just for the beginning of 2018, but something we should address often, which is, you know what, you should be reading your Bible. <laughs> that's that's, a, uh, that's a, a give me, but something we need to be reminded of. Uh, it's not just for Sundays to come hear the Bible, but something you should personally. God has blessed us in a culture today of printing that allows us to possess the Word of God in our own hands, which is fantastic. And so we should, uh, we should be delighting in it. We should be taking it um, and reading it, and uh, not just reading it, but as we talked about, part of that is reading it with the vision of looking for Christ. Um, you know, we talk about take a, take a word in a, in a verse, put the word in the verse, put the verse in the, in the paragraph, put the paragraph in the chapter, put the chapter in the book, and put the book in the testament, and the testament in the whole Bible, right? You just keep, think of it as zooming in and zooming out, right? You, a lot of times you do inductive Bible study, you're reading pretty closely, and then you kind of need to zoom out. Sometimes we get lost in the minutia of this little part. We need to zoom the camera back to be able to see, okay, so what is, how does this fit into the grand storyline of the Bible? How does, this, how does this point me to Jesus? Is it, a, is it illustrating Jesus? Is it pointing to my need of Jesus? Is it, you know, and we're asking those questions of a text as we're reading it. So that's one in kind of a practical way. And, and I think alongside that is preaching the gospel to myself in that devotional time, because it's easy for me when I think about personal Bible study for the, the elder brother to sneak in right there. And all of a sudden I feel either merit before God because Hey, I've done a really good job of sticking to my 2018 Bible reading plan, and I've checked those boxes, and I'm on, on target, or that sense of despair because I've struggled, and I haven't had that time in the Word here this morning. And so, so yes, read absolutely and study in, in light of the whole Scripture, but also preach that gospel to myself that it is not my merit, my discipline, my commitment to Christ that earns me favor with Him, and I can delight in that of even if, even if I'm not behaving as I ought, if I'm not doing the religious duties that I ought, that Christ's work is still complete on my behalf, and that it is his righteousness that's wrapped around me, not my righteousness. My default kind of is the older brother as well, and I remember just lots of years of um, sharing with people because I felt like I needed to do that. It was my duty that I needed to do to share that, but when I really started focusing on the gospel and what Jesus did for me and the gratitude there now leads me to want to talk to people and want to share with people that I meet down at the restaurant or people that are in my street. And there's just this burning desire. And I, I love that, the word delighting. I think that's a, an awesome word to use for us to claim as a church. I think it's awesome. So I was uh, thinking this week, in fact, at home with the kids, I... I had actually was listening to you last week when you preached. And so you were talking about loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbors yourself. And, and the reality of it is, um, then I'm reminded of, of Matthew 28 when it says, go therefore and make disciples, uh, teaching people, right, teaching them to observe all, of I've, all I have commanded. And so as we were talking about that at home this week, really dawned on me that the gospel is, is a message of action that compels us to, to move forward. And, and even bringing that back to full circle and what we talked about in life groups today, you know, when you're talking about Philip was compelled to go, right? If you look at his life, he obeyed and was compelled to go and to serve the Lord in, in, as, as an evangelist. Um, and so as I was thinking about and I've thought through some of the, the changes that Eddie's talking about with these new documents and, and so forth, 
if you really think about the gospel compelling us to go, right, it's, it's, it compels us to action, right? So none of us are off the hook, right? All of us are changing. We, you know, we go to work. We have goals that we're doing. We're, we're being asked to, to, to change and to go in a different direction. And so if I think about, for instance, our Articles of Faith, right, let's stop and, and, and think about that, right? Articles of Faith are asking us to understand what we believe, right? It's, it's an action. And so as we think about what we're going to be viewing these next few weeks, I welcome that from the standpoint of it, it forces us to look into what we believe, take action on that, which sometimes we probably don't stop to take, take note of, right? And so it's a good thing because it compels us to change in areas maybe we weren't thinking about. Yeah, and that's where that just delighting goes beyond just understanding. And it kind of moves you to kind of have your heart so filled up with the gospel that no matter what knocks into you, it just kind of naturally spills out. Well, that's why the, the phrase delight in the gospel is more about the why than the what. So we're not, we're not changing the what in terms of like what, are we, what is God calling us to do. We're, we're talking about why we should do it. And the why to God, I would say, is more important than the what. Because you can go through the what in the, throughout the Old Testament, and you can go to Malachi, for example, and you can find where God's like, can someone just please close the gate? Like, I don't want any sacrifices. I don't want any, just stop it. I don't want it, you know. But God commanded them to do it, but he's like, I don't want it because why they're doing it. Um, and so you can get that in Isaiah 1 as well. You can find all these commands that God told them to do, and he said, stop it. Like, I don't want it. Um, because it was, it was about the heart. And so when we delight in it, it moves us then, you know, to go. Yeah, and it, to do that, you have to you have to slow down. I mean, we've talked a lot about uh, that taking moments of silence and solitude. You actually have to stop and ponder Scripture. You have to preach the gospel to yourself, whether that's to sit and meditate on a verse for a while, just think about it over and over, or maybe you sit down with a journal and just write that verse out and begin to understand the personal implications in your life. And ultimately, that's what we're hoping to do here as a church, why we're not just dumping everything out all at once, but to say, hey, as a church family, let's just lovingly and graciously walk together Let's understand what the Holy Spirit is doing and leading us towards. The, the other thing, delighting the gospel really is a community effort. What are some of the ways that we delight in the gospel as a community? I guess I can speak to it from a, just some of the things we've done with community groups is that because the gospel is not about what I've done but about what Jesus has done, it allows me to be honest with God whether I'm doing what I ought to do or whether I'm not doing what I ought to do, I'm able to be honest with him knowing that my acceptance is not in any way contingent or dependent upon what I've done. What that then frees us to do is when I can be honest with God about where I'm at, then in community I can also be honest with my brothers and my sisters about where things are at. The mask can come off because I know that my acceptance, again, is not dependent upon my actions, right? And that, in turn, ought to uh, encourage and compel our brothers and sisters um, to embrace the gospel rather than the elder brother um, rule-driven mentality where my performance is what matters. And so by, by me being honest with God, it then compels me and frees me to be honest with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And in so doing, it ought to free them to be both honest with God and with self and come back to delight in the gospel as we do it together. Um, which I think is part of what James 5 is talking about. The healing that comes in confessing our sins to one another is, oh, wow, 
I really can be honest there. Um, I can be vulnerable. I can be transparent. Um, Hebrews 3 says the same thing. And it moves you to the, in the same community to, to fight the younger brother idolatry as well because that can be honest and share with you, like, I'm really drifting here. Like, I really am tempted to delight in and treasure the money that I'm making at work or this relationship with this person, right? And, and that because I've got the gospel, I can be transparent and honest and be like, hey, look, I'm, I'm drifting this way. I'm, and so often what happens with us is that we don't, you know, th- those who say fall into sin don't fall very far, right? It's because it's, it, we, we've slowly drifted that way, but the gospel compels us to be honest about the, the previous before the fall, right? It, it causes us to go like, okay, I, I need to be honest with you and share, Here, here's where I'm feeling, here's where I'm going, here's where my heart is drifting. And that is how community is powerful because the gospel opens that door to allow me to be honest about my temptations, right? And so it, it helps with both of those aspects. Jared, you had mentioned a really good analogy of, uh, we, we had lunch this week, and you had said about dieting and exercise. Uh, diet always works better when you do it in a community. Can you share that analogy <laughs> with us? I thought that was just so helpful. Well, um, so my, my whole thinking on my spiritual life these days is one of action, right? And so the gospel doesn't call us to be sediment. And so I was sharing with the kids of how in the world do you understand, how do we put off idolatry, right, and, and, and really let the gospel penetrate our hearts. And so I use it as an analogy of our bodies. So the idea is, is when we're young and in our 20s and in our teens, we feel really good about ourselves. But when you get to be my age, you realize that you've put on a lot of sediment that you hadn't planned on, right? <laughs> and S- sediment. Sediment. Okay, okay. Sediment, you know. <laughs> One bite at a time. Okay. LBs. L- LBs. And, and, it, and, and the thing is, is you don't start out your life to, 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 to gain sediment, right? To, to gain weight that, it, that we all find ourselves in mid, mid, mid to late part of our life. And so I told the kids, listen, this is a lot like our spiritual life, right? There's a lot of times that we're going throughout the day and we're putting a little bit in and we're putting a little bit in. And before we know it, we've become sedimentary in our faith and the gospel. It's, it seems like the gospel just kind of bounces off of us because this whole thing about idolatry, right? And I, that's what we're kind of working through as a family is this idea of idols in our life. It's a little bit of a spiritual diet and exercise plan. Yeah, I, I like that analogy. Interesting. You talked about dieting while you were out to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was Mexican food. It's good. It's good. When we talk about delighting in the gospel as a community, we kind of naturally come to the times as a church community that we gather together. We use this as kind of worship gatherings. That's what we call this time together. What are the specific things that that looks like as we gather as a church family? How do we delight in the gospel when we gather together? Yeah, we had you know, it moved everything, even our activities of our ministries and stuff, to Sundays and just kind of like a gospel day of just being trained, being equipped, being centered on, motivated by, empowered by the gospel to be sent out. So during the week, we can be the people of God out into the community. And, um, and when we gather together on a Sunday morning, as we talked about communion, like, why? You know, I still get the question, why do we do communion every Sunday? It's for the very purpose I mentioned today, just to remember again, why am I here, and what's the point of all this, and what has God called me to do? It's a time of reflection, a time of remembrance of Christ. Very quickly, we can drift into, into just, 
all right, what are all the things, what are the list of things we're supposed to do, and what are the things we're supposed to avoid, and we can just easily jump to that. And if we don't, get, if we don't keep the gospel essential, which is why we do communion, to remember that. And it forces me as a preacher to go, okay, I've got to get to Jesus. I've got to get to the gospel, because if I don't, it's going to be really awkward to be like, okay, guys, now it's communion time. It's like, no, we need to transition that whole sermon should be based on that. So even the structure of our service, we talk about the gospel as the Bible as a whole. It's, it's creation. Starts off, the Bible starts off with four, it's a four-part or four-act play, as it were, right? You have creation, you have the fall, you have redemption, and then you have restoration. Right? That's the, the story right there in four words. And the whole service goes that way. We start off with creation, the glory of God, the creator God, and we talk about you know, the majesty and holiness and, and greatness of God at the beginning when we sing. And, and we move into, we get into kind of time of confession and reflection and talking about our, our, our failing, our, our, our fall, our sin. And then we get into the story of the Bible. We dive into and look at it to get to redemption, to get to the cross. And then we celebrate at the end and sing about you know, the return of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the greatness of Christ. And so our whole service is crafted to go with the gospel story. That's why we kind of do it the way we do it. And so uh, all that's motivated by it, the structure. I like the, uh, the time at the end where people can go to the communion tables and there are people there to be able to pray with them. And wh- when I'm not standing there, I'm almost every week just drawn to go and take that opportunity to pray with somebody and, and provides a great opportunity for people who, who sense that need to come to yeah. Christ that they can talk to someone. Yeah, prayer is a huge part of that. I don't know if a lot of you realize this, but every Sunday there's a group of people who step out of the service, sit in a room, and just pray for you. Pray for Pastor Chris or whichever pastor is preaching. Just pray over us. Prayer is a huge part of delighting in the gospel as a community. It's why this week is our prayer emphasis week as a church family. Can I say one thing quick on, on the tables that Pastor Brian was mentioning? Right, delighting in the gospel frees me to say, hey, maybe I didn't rest in the gospel this week, and I wasn't compelled by it this week, perhaps. And so I may come and pray with somebody who's at one of the communion tables, and it's not that I have an unbelievable life-altering decision that's, you know, whatever happening at that point, but it's just to come and have that fellowship and pray for a moment um, that both of us would delight in the gospel this week. Or maybe you had a wonderful time on Thursday afternoon with Christ and to also delight together in that. And so there, there's more of a opportunity and a freedom to, to share that delight in community um, rather than just waiting for, hey, I already walked the aisle once in my life. I don't need to do that ever again sort of thing. Yeah. The, the other thing that we stop and ponder a lot as, as leaders is, what does it look like to delight in the gospel for future generations? That we do sit upon an incredible legacy here, um, that this church family has gathered in one way or another since 1851. A lot of churches don't have that type of, of generational legacy, and we've been blessed so greatly by those who've been faithful before us and so we feel that, and we go, how can we be faithful for the generations ahead? What are those things that we do to delight in the gospel for the generations ahead of us that we don't know? Well, I think that's where we, you get into talking about constitutional stuff, and that's where we were talking about, um, you know, language evolves and changes over time, and I need to clarify what we believe. I always think about, like, we talk about doctrine, we talk about the terms um, inspiration and errancy of Scripture. Well, we believe those. Uh, it means the Bible's without error, it's inerrancy, uh, inspiration. Um, we talk about the word infallibility, 
Um, that's another word gets thrown out. Well, that word got shifted back in the 50s and 60s to mean that the Bible is only inspired by God in, in matters of faith and practice, but not in science and history. And we're like, no, 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 we believe all of that. And so the word got hijacked and meant something different. So now we need, okay, no, we, we believe in full inerrancy, a complete inspire, inspiration by God in every word. And so there's need to always kind of re-clarify what it is that we believe in order for the future generations to come to, to be able to stand on solid ground. You were going to say, Justin? I was going to say much of what you just said. <laughs> no, but I think bringing it back to, uh, coming back to reevaluate what are, what are we known for as a church? What, uh, doctrinally, what do we stand upon? And to revisit that periodically um, is a really healthy exercise in things that are, are true but can often be taken for granted and become more of just kind of intellectual assent rather than true delight in. And so the process of, of revisiting on a regular basis, and sometimes that means a minor tweak, and sometimes it means um, generating a, a fresh document, um, are both helpful in bringing us for generations to come in delighting in this gospel so that, um, so that the legacy of the last 170 years, by the grace of God, may continue on into the future. Yeah, and I think the example that we see laid out throughout the New Testament for this is church planting. It's is sending out missionaries. It's kicking people out of our church to go help another church get started in a, in a good way, right? Uh, that is, is healthy for a church to delight in the gospel so much that we're not concerned about ourselves, but we're more concerned about the gospel and just seeing the gospel grow, not necessarily our own, our own numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we want to be a church planting church, which is part of the legacy of, of our church, right? Yeah, we've done it and, all and, along. You know, we, we envision you know, a church of 800 and starting new churches, not getting much bigger than that. That's not our goal is not to be a mega church and all that. That's not the vision of the future. It's having a church that is able to be a base to be starting new churches where there's needs to see more people come into Christ. The fact of the matter is, is that in church plants, have 80% of their growth is new converts. You know, uh, traditional churches that are kind of been established for a while, 20% of their growth is new converts. That's just, a, that's just a fact. And so wanting to plant new churches is very effective in reaching the lost, which is what we're, what we're after. And even when we think about the school, we talk about the future of the school and where we're going. I mean, we, you know, I've had many conversations with Chad is talking about, uh, you know, how this applies and talking about our, you know, the why being more important than just the what, you know, why the students and each individual and shepherding them and talking about the, the you know, getting into their heart of why, why and what they want to do as opposed to just, you know, the, the compliance-based kind of thing. Uh, we want to know why, and uh, we want to get to the, to the heart of the students and to see for the future to have them based on the gospel as well as they move forward into the world being sent out from the school. So here might be the kind of last and final pressing question. Why are we starting here? I mean, we've, we've talked about, you know, some pretty significant things, but we've spent the majority of the time just talking about delighting in the gospel. Why does delighting in the gospel precede any, anything else, any other statement? Why do we start there? Because it all flows out of that. Any other foundation besides delight in the gospel will not sustain us. It will not carry us. It will not bear eternal fruit. And so whether we talk about a sermon series and growing through relationships and serving our community and so forth, or new documents being um, created, amended, revised, whatever, 
any motivation that doesn't start with us both personally and corporately delighting in the gospel will not be eternal. Yeah, and we talk about the other parts of our philosophy of ministry, and we say, you know, grow into relationships. Well, if we're a church that says, you know, we do relationships well, or if we're a church that says, hey, we send people out well, or we are a church who serves the community well, and if that's what we're known for, if that's, if that's, if that's the foundation, that's it, we're, it's not going to last. The, the, the first flag has to be planted that we delight in the gospel. We are gospel-centered, Bible-believing, and, and Jesus-centered people. And that, that's, where we're, that's where we start. That's where we plant the flag. And the others flow out of that. Um, we can't be known for the other things without being known first and primarily for the gospel. I think it's significant, too, that we often hear about stewardship of time, talent, treasure. But there is a stewardship we're given. We're, we're responsible for the gospel. You've been entrusted with the gospel. I think it's very, very important. Yeah, and anytime you consider change, we must consider change in light of the gospel. If it's not for the sake of the gospel, then it's, it's not worth pursuing. It's not right. worth going after. So that's why we start here. That's why we start with delighting in the gospel. Before we consider anything, we must first consider the gospel, and the things that we consider to change must be for the gospel's sake and not Right, because we're not changing for change's sake. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's just inviting pain on yourself. Like, who wants to do that? Um, that it, it is motivated out of that, and that is, that is our, our premise. Yep. We know we've gone over, so we're going to try and cut it short here. Uh, there are a lot of questions we know are swarming around. And so we just ask for your patience to walk through this with us. We'd love you all very much and spend many hours a week in prayer for you. Um, and as the Holy Spirit has laid these things on our heart, we want to walk these things through with you patiently and lovingly. We know we've had more time to process, so we want to give you time process. So we're going to take some time over the next couple of weeks, as I've shared and Pastor Chris shared, to really answer as many questions as possible. We're available to sit down. We do have a timeline in which we are going to release information, and we're going to hold to that timeline. So if you ask us something that we're not ready to reveal yet, we're just going to ask you to patiently wait. Uh, But we have anticipated a few questions, and we've gone ahead and written a series of, of three articles We've printed them in pamphlet form, and you can pick them up in the back of the auditorium in the info racks, and you can also get them at the info rack next to the receptionist desk. We've also put them up on our website, ebethesda.org forward slash changes, and then they are also available on the Hub app. If you just go to that left menu, you'll see a button there for changes. And we will be updating those pages and these info racks over the weeks ahead with new information. We encourage you to read them and get a hold of all of that. If you're curious about the different dates that I rattled off earlier, that's all printed in all of those areas. So I encourage you to take those and prayerfully consider these things with us. Pray with us. We ask as we've sought the Holy Spirit's leading that you would do the same. So I encourage you to grab those things.